everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. We just watched the finish of stage five of the Tour de France from Poe to Laurence. It was, a, I would say, a shockingly exciting mountain stage. I thought this was just going to be opening the proceedings, but Jai Henley got into the early breakaway. I have no idea what UAE was thinking. Took up to four minutes at one point. Jonas Vindegaard let UAE just work on the front, burn through all their riders, and then attack Tadej Pogacar on the final climb and absolutely crushed everybody. It was really, really, really impressive to watch. If anyone thought that he did not have what it takes to win another Tour de France, I think that was a humbling experience for those people. And But Hindley held him off, won the stage by 32 seconds, is now sitting first in the GC. This is huge for Jai Hindley. And it just gets harder from here. We have, I would say, a really, really difficult mount stage in the Pyrenees tomorrow. Andrew, what are you thinking right now? Where's your mind at? Where my mind is at is that the action was hot today. I think it's about to get hotter, Spencer. Okay. You know, that my, my, I was concerned about the opposite. I was thinking, God, is it, is, was this it? Like, is, is this just going to be a slog now until the Alps? Everyone's just licking their wounds until we get... I mean, because what is, like, tell me, how does it get hotter? How, do, how does this get hotter? Who, who could potentially even pressure Vindegaard at this point? I mean, that's the kind of thing that we would say with the kind of performance that we saw today. And I mean, I would say that typically Pog being on the ropes this early in the tour would indicate Spencer, he's in pretty deep trouble. I thought he had put in big hours on my whoosh heading into the tour similar to Matt Heyman leading up to Perry Roubaix the year that he won when he had to spend all that time on Zwift. There are more modern technologies now. There's my whoosh. I thought that Tade probably would come into this race fit and ready to rock, and he couldn't hang today. So, I mean, yes, it seems unlikely that he's going to turn things around, but anything could happen out there on the road. And I think it would be a mistake to say case closed. This Matlock case has been resolved. I will say it looks, I was eavesdropping on a conversation last night between a director of a team in the tour and someone else, a close confidant. And their consensus was Tade Pogacar's biggest weakness is his UAE team. Not the strength of the team, but the direction coming from inside the team. Yeah. And now that we've watched him burn an insane number of matches on stages one and two, you know, going over those climbs, Dropping his teammate, Adam Yates, who was in the yellow jersey, who it seemed like the team wanted to be high up in the GC, and then wanting Vinegard to pull through with him, sprinting nonstop, all the talk of Jonas should have, should have let out Wout Van Aert, why isn't Jonas helping? All that looks pretty silly now that we've seen Pogacar look pretty tired in a key moment, and Jonas looked fresh, fresh, fresh. My lord, he looked smart for refusing to do anything until this point, kind of reminding us how... Tour de France's are won. They're not won by sprinting for bonus seconds in the first two stages. I, I wonder, we just seen a replay of last year where Pogacar's good. I, I would argue, obviously today was, Vinegard looked amazing. I would argue if Pogacar rode as conservatively as Vinegard, he would be roughly equal on these climbs. I think he's just burning way too much energy. And can we talk, let's talk about the beginning. So, this stage starts, it's, a, it's really hectic, really hard. Massive breakaway goes. Jai Hindley gets in it. You know, if you're UAE, you're starting the stage thinking, okay, goal number one, Jonas Vindegaard does not get in the breakaway. Goal number two, Jai Hindley does not get in the breakaway. Those are the two riders who realistically can beat us in this race. Immediately, that's up in smoke. Hindley is up the road, and they don't really respond. So what that sets up is they have to work all day to keep Hindley in check, and then when... Pogacar gets dropped by Vinegar in the final climb. He has no one to help him, A, on the climb, or then B, going over the climb. He just says Sepku's sitting on his wheel. I mean, it was a, I felt like a complete disaster from UAE. Like, I mean, do you have any thoughts about that? How could this possibly happen that they let Hindley get up the road? Well, first of all, Spencer, I want to say that I've got my Brent Book Walter interview dropping today over on Choose the Hard Way. Find us everywhere you listen at Hardway Pod, choose the hardway.com. And I, what I'm observing today at the end of this stage is, I mean, is, uh, is Team UAE going with a bit of an Ineos strategy here? Of just work, 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 and then not win the race? Is that what you mean? Just like have a handful of people very closely uh, spaced <laughs> within like the top, top, six, top six riders. It is looking a bit like that. 
I mean, I j- just never say never. I was, I know that we were talking about this a bit before recording today. I have been watching the Team UAE's team videos, which typically these things are propaganda in the past, as Spencer and I have discussed. This is the time of year when you start to see teams dropping their rap videos. Team UAE, we haven't seen Tade spit bars so far this year, but watching their team video, it really made me think about, you know, what are the second and third order consequences of participating in the Netflix Unchained series? Gosh, I really dislike that name. Um, likely to uh, to be back this year, right? Like I know that they're filming it again. And it's been interesting to see Wout in post-race interviews because of course the, the Netflix series advanced that narrative that there was tension within the team and then until today of course it seemed like gosh like maybe there is actually something to that but in post-race interviews Wout seems like a pretty unflappable guy he seems like someone who is built for fame he can handle the pressure we've seen the stories in the offseason about you know he has people coming up and knocking on his door he's on you know bus tours his home is on the map they're passing by there a couple of times a day um but he seems a little bit vexed by what's happened with these narratives, whether they're true or not, that have been advanced in the press. And I have to think that's a bit distracting within the team. Meanwhile, if you go check out the UAE team videos, and again, typically these things are total propaganda, but it, it, honestly, it seems like that team is super tight. Like they're having a really good time and I get it. Pog got slaughtered today he did not have a good day i'm not there. having a good time tonight he did not, <laughs> I'm, I'm really you know i'm it's i'm stretching the bounds of my imagination um but that's what one has to do in a situation like this to think about things continuing to be interesting but i think that they possibly could be and i'm also thinking about um i'm sure you saw the post-race video the other day where tade mimicked while throwing his water bottle on the ground I mean, the guy seems loose. He seems relaxed. Maybe he's a bit slower than Jonas. But the last scoop of ice has not been put atop these freshly caught fish. Let's put it that way. I mean, I... I, <laughs> But yeah, you've been watching a lot of Team UE stuff. You were telling me before the show, you, you are having doubts about women being able to go out in public and, and vote. I think the soft power is, is getting to you. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've been watching a lot of videos from the UAE and I, I'm, I'm doubting this democracy thing, but I do. I don't think Jonas, I don't think Pogaccio is that much weaker than Jonas. That that's the frustrating part where the team just really set him up to face plant today. Like, let's just, let's just say he's a few percent off Vinegard. Vinegard drops him. Ideally, Micah would still be there to pace him. I don't know why they pulled Mark Soler back from the breakaway. Like get Mark Soler over the final climb. Mark Soler is waiting to then pull Pagachar, who's been helped by Micah on the climb. Limit your losses to 30, 40 seconds. Like that's the way you race the Tour de France. You don't just go out, sprint, sprint, sprint. Oh, let's burn up all our riders. Oh, let's pull this rider from the breakaway, who we sent up to the breakaway and sacrificed quite a bit by sending them up there because it meant we couldn't control the breakaway and let the breakaway go. And then just not use them. Like to me, it all feels very scattershot. And I, yes, I like, wow, it's not just a story. I mean, he's like yelling at people on the team bus. Like you can hear him screaming outside the team bus from, you can hear him screaming inside the team bus from the outside. Almost like uh, as the Aussies would say, he's, he's throwing a bit of a tanty. I feel like a multi-day tantrum. And but today really exposed, this is not the Wout Van Art of last year. I mean, the Wout Van Art of last year, doesn't get dropped at the bottom of the Col de la Marie Blanc. He probably competes for the stage win. He looked, he was in the break. I mean, it was an incredible ride. He looked like he was suffering. I, I kind of think the Wout narrative is going to shrink into the distance a little bit. I mean, he'll go for a stage win. Maybe he'll get one in Bordeaux, maybe in Limoges later this week. But that might, like, I think just a stage win and helping Vindegaard is kind of the story from here on out. I think, and especially with Vindegaard being so strong, it's going to vindicate a lot of the not helping Wout earlier. Like, I think that story is just going to slowly fade away and maybe Wout will be a little upset about it. But I don't think that's going to be a continuing narrative. And I mean, on UAE, 
Adam Yates is up there. When Jonas went today, there was not a Yates to be seen. The Yates were out the back. There's one leader on that team. It's Tadej Pogacar. I'm just thinking about 2022 when we had nuclear wout. There are a lot of questions about whether he should have been riding the way that he was. But I'm kind of missing nuclear wout right now. It really made the race exciting to have someone just doing nonsensical things that somehow worked out over and over again. That made the race very exciting to watch. And I mean, the note that I I put here was, you know, are we still in a cycling 2.0 era or are we in a dumb point era? Have we a regressed? Dumb yeah, is it dumb no, point Yeah, no, I had like is the same like, note. Yeah, have we gone from dumb. peak tech? Have we gone from peak tech to base tech? Is this the Geo Cities tour? Are we on AOL <laughs> dial-up? Is this a 14k tour? Like, what's going on? It might be like the Stone Age. We've just we've lost all ability for technology or for thinking. I mean, you were saying before we recorded that you think this is kind of a boring start to the tour. Last year was more dynamic. I went back to the stages. It might just be nuclear wow is the difference. Because if you look Dunkirk right. to Calais, amazing stage. That's just a sprint stage if Wout Van Aert is on the same form as this year. And then obviously the Arnberg stage was amazing. But then like you have these long the long wee stage where you know Wout I think was in the breakaway for no reason all day and dropped Kun Simmons. Like that's probably just a more routine stage without him. If he's on last year's form, he probably wins. One of the first two stages, he probably blows up that sprint finish yesterday, and then he maybe even wins today. And it's less of just, oh, this is just a GC, it's not a slog, but like a, we're, we're into the GC in game almost is what it feels like on stage going into stage six. I will say, like Pagacar being down going into the second and third week, not the worst case scenario for viewers and fans. Like, the guy does not care. He's not going to try to like preserve a third place or a second place. He does not care. Like he's really going to come out swinging and he's, I feel like he's only going to get better. Like, let's just say he came in undercooked because he hasn't been racing. Like watch out for that guy in week two and three. And he's really going to press people. Like it, it could like from, if you thought Jai Henley had a good ride today, watch out for Vin Art when we get like stage 20 is a perfect, just like screw it, throw it all at the wall stage. Um, so it's not over, but I think for the next few stages, like I worry about tomorrow because you know, it's a hard Pyrenees stage. We have a cold Espan and then cold Tourmalet in the middle of the stage. I just don't see anyone being brave enough to challenge Vindegaard. And I mean, what, so what do you think UAE should have done? Like, were you watching that when the break formed and you go like hearing Ineos's radio, which I'm not even convinced this is the radio that the I actually are hearing. Yeah, I have a theory. I think that it's AI generated team radio. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that we're hearing actual things happening between team directors and people in the race. I think that they have AI, they have a sample of each team director's voice, and then they have this pablum that they're just pumping out over the loudspeakers to us at home. I mean, also like what's the approval process for these really bland mayo on white, uh, bread things that are being put on the screen. This must be like getting run through some sensor, right? Cause we're not hearing. Yeah. It's, it's delayed. Cause if you noticed Henley is like at the bottom of the descent and you're hearing, it's actually the best thing I've ever heard on those radios where it's like, think about like focus on the descent left, right, left, right, left, right. Three switchbacks after the steep yeah. section. But he had already done that. So it must be, there must be someone listening to it. And then I don't know if they're asking that. That's actually an interesting question if they then have to go back to the team because it is about a four or five minute delay. So they could be. And then they have to approve it. But they had Steve Cummings talk from Ineos stocking it. Hindley's in the breakaway. Like this is serious. And he's just like, everyone stay alert. GC riders might go. It's like the GC rider, <laughs> he's the third favorite in the race and he's up the road. Like maybe let's respond, people. And JV, who I thought was very good on the Eurosport commentary today, was saying, well, you can't control uh, a group of 35 riders. It's like, well, like that's a, like, so is that like a clickbait thing? Like one little trick GC riders hate, just jump into a 35 rider breakaway and there's nothing they can do to stop you. You know, if that was, let's just say Vindegaard was in that move, Pogacar just would have jumped up there. And once Pogacar goes, the Peloton will respond. There will be no pitter patter back there. Like, the breakaway is over. And that's traditionally what you do. If a GC rival gets into a strong move, you feel like your team can't control it. 
you follow them and then every it just kills the breakaway no one in the breakaway works everyone has to respond behind and you get to reset you know that's probably what it should have happened but maybe they don't think as highly of jai henley as i do i mean the guy finished second at the zero first the zero I don't see another rider in this race besides Pogacar and Vindegaard who is, is A, as accomplished as him in Grand Tours and is on, of good, is on good form right now. So I, I wouldn't have let him go. Before we just slide past the 2022 tour, which you tried to do in a text exchange that we had, you characterized the beginning of that race. The first few stages is rather boring. Spencer, do I have to refresh your memory that on stage two in uh, 2022, we had the bridge by Michael Bay. <laughs> that thing was terrible. <laughs> I was like so hyped up. <laughs> there was one crash. I was worried. I, I was a little worried that a guy crashes. You can see it in the Unchained Dock. And he right. gets in the air. And I'm like, God, what if someone had gone over the side? Like the, and this is like, this is a little PSA for me. I just don't think bridge, uh, bridge fences are high enough worldwide. Like, let's get those thing up to 10, 12 feet maybe. I don't want to be driving off those bridges, but other than fearing that someone might, and that Kaylee Fretz is tweeting, like, do they have boats down there to catch them? It's like, Kaylee, I got bad news for you, buddy. They go off that bridge. There's not going to be anything to catch. But it, you know, that, that bridge was just like kind of, kind of rode it at tempo. It was a sprint stage. I thought Denmark, I mean, I, I learned a lot about Denmark and I learned that it's, uh, they love cycling and the country's very flat and Magnus Corp liked getting them breakaways. That actually is a nice segue to Nielsen Palace was playing the Magnus Court role this year off the front, the first three stages, four, three stages, soaking up KOM points, soaking up the crowd. Nielsen Palace right now, nowhere to be seen in the KOM classification. 10 points off the lead after a single climb where Felix Gall had almost no points going into it and now is leading the competition. Like, what was that about? You know, like Palace, I think could have won stages one or two, like, He's stronger than Victor LeFay, and Victor LeFay won stage two. Was that a mistake to just go all in seemingly on KOM early, burn a lot of matches, and then poop the bed when the first HC climb first HC climb came? I was Magnus Cord also wore the KOM jersey at some point, right? Not at this rate. That's last year. Not yeah, last year. That's, got, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah I know. So I know, exactly. I know that this year he is not. He is not wearing it this year, but last year he wore it as well. I'm bringing this up because this is classic EF. I mean, you and I knew we knew something was going to happen that would just wipe Carapaz <laughs> off the map. We like, said like think, it's going to be tougher than when Carapaz is gone. <laughs> yeah, and that was you know that's a bummer. It's definitely a bummer to to fracture your kneecap. I'm sorry that that happened. I didn't really hear anyone commenting on the irony that it was Carapaz in a wreck with a Movistar writer, which like, yeah. that just seems tremendously ironic to me, given that, you know, he went to EF to really unlock his potential as a Grand Tour writer. I mean, he had already done great things, of course, won the Giro at that point, but he really wanted to go for the tour, wanted a better team. And here he is out of the race on the first stage in a wreck with someone from his old team. EF, however, they're they're the very best at generating publicity from they just like they, you know, it's like somebody who can uh squeeze through a gap in a sprint and get the stage win, which they don't often do that, of course. They do sometimes. But they do these it's things like bleeding from, a stone or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just from a marketing point of view, like I actually wondered was this the plan the whole time? Like where, you know, they looked at the parkours. Okay. Nielsen palace, let's set aside whether you can win a stage. Maybe you can later in the race, but like, let's make sure we get you into the polka dot Jersey. The first week, we're going to start banking eyeballs to take back to the team to say we maximized our marketing value. And I'm sure you've noted this, uh, as well, Spencer, but I mean, Nielsen Palace is out there. He's he's trying to win hearts and minds. He's like watching him go through these KOM sprint points. And I, I think the EF documentary, you know, they have the race TV thing. I think they did something about this, but he's like, he's like doing the shooter, like waving his hands around. I mean, that's that's cool. We haven't typically seen people really celebrate getting 
points in the KO competition in this manner, but I guess people are writing about it. So it's like, okay, cool. They've found another way to get people to write about them and talk about them that other people have completely ignored because they didn't see any value in doing it. But this guy is, you know, pointing at a baby in the crowd as he goes through, like, you know, you know what I mean? I feel like I it's like, an, a little unbecoming of his talent. He's one of the most talented riders of this race. Like, I, I agree with everything you're saying. It's amazing publicity. Why isn't Alberto Bedial doing this? Why isn't Magnus Clark yeah, doing it's this got, James it's, Shaw? It's got like a bit of a Thomas Volkler quality about yeah. it. I was going to say, this is French <laughs> This is French behavior. Like, we're not actually going to try to win. We're just going to like take the easy layup of the publicity of kind of stomping our way into the polka dot and then losing at the moment the race gets hard. But I yeah. feel like they could have had their cake and eaten it too. Like they could have kept Nielsen in reserve. And maybe Alberto Bedial is just like, I, I am not going to go out on this breakaway and celebrate at the top of these climbs and point at babies. <laughs> I was, I, I'm, a, I'm a Flanders winner. I'm not doing that. But I just feel like they, they had other resources they could have deployed for the yeah. publicity like they did with Magnus Court, who then recovered and had a good tour after that. But now right. Palace is, is cooked for these really tough stages that yeah. maybe I'm just, maybe I'm fundamentally off on Nielsen Palace, but I think he could have ridden a decent GC race here. I mean, maybe not. I, I like, is he that, is he that much different from Jai Henley? Like, could he have been competing for the stage win today? I mean, maybe ultimately they don't care about that. Yeah. This, this will sound rather calloused. And I do, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Nielsen Palace for EF education first, easy post. I just, uh, I just don't really care about the KOM jersey. It doesn't. And you shouldn't. Just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it just, it doesn't intrigue me. It doesn't capture my mind. I don't feel like it's the best climber in the race. It, I mean, much like some of the behavior we just described, feels like a bit of a stunt. I don't know. It's, it's not a competition that intrigues me or that I'm paying a lot of attention to. Well, yeah, and this stunt behavior started, I think, with like Lauren Jalabert. They started like gaming the system by doing what Palace is doing. They have kind of fixed the competition, and the best climber does win. But here's the bad news. Do you know who the best climber in the Tour de France is? It's the guy who wins the race. Yeah. So every year now, it's just the winner of the race wins the KOM competition, which I guess if you're having a true KOM competition, that does make sense. That's probably who should be winning because... To, to, to bring it back to Jonas Vinegard, when he went today, my Lord, was he fast. Like I saw he did the, the final climb. It was like something like two minutes faster than Jai Hindley. So like, well, actually that does highlight too. So Jai Hindley first in the GC takes buckets of time on you know, 47 seconds on Vinegard or no, 34 seconds on Vinegard. but he takes over a minute on Pogacar. The real, I think his real rivals are for the podium. So like Pogacar, David Godu, Carlos Rodriguez, Simon Yates, Adam Yates. Takes a ton of time on them. You could argue he put out less energy than the Peloton. Like, yes, he was in the breakaway, but it was a big group. And he really only went hard the last 4K of the final climb, which is probably why his time was so much slower. And it's, it's really a genius move by Bora and Henley. Like, you get into the break, you get spotted time, you win a stage, you're in the jersey, you're well positioned for the GC and you do it at, I would argue, like a negative energy differential. So you've then put out less energy than the group behind because you didn't have to pace as hard yeah. through the hard parts. You were just spotted time in the easier parts of the course. Like really an incredible ride from Jai Hindley. It's a reverse Garrett Thomas is what I call it. It is the, yeah, exactly, exactly. Get ahead, ride slower. That's the new, that's actually, this is cycling 3.0, Andrew. Why are we not, why are we not just getting in the breakaways and then riding the hardest climb slower and still winning the stage? I do kind of wonder if this is, we, as we saw yesterday, a lot of hand-wringing over this. The breakaway was like, nah, we're just not going to do it. This seems silly. Why am I going to go out there and just get reeled in by the sprint team? So they just didn't go. I mean, one group went from like 80K to go to 30K to go and just gave up. I kind of think that's the right move. Like, why would you go out there for no reason? And then the breakaway today was co-opted by a GC rider using it to their advantage. I think we're kind of in the midst of seeing breakaways redefined a little bit. And it's bad news for your boy, Victor Campanarts. I mean, his day was, was ruined by Jai Henley. 
Let's talk a little bit about Camp and Arts's helmet. I know that that's what people listening are really curious about. <laughs> if if you take a look at Camp and Arts helmet and Camp and Arts, he is as deep as you can get into marginal gains as is possible. I'm not sure anybody is deeper than him. And if you look at his helmet, I mean Spencer, you noted the man never wears glasses. Sunglasses. He yeah. never has sunglasses on. I'm wondering if he's had his eyes replaced like if there's some kind of cyborg type treatment that's going on there. That seems like a, a risky and dangerous thing to do. And maybe there's some aerodynamic advantage or he has, who knows? But if you take a look at his helmet, there are echoes of Primoz Roglic tour 2020 final time trial where it's almost like he has a, a toy cycling helmet. <laughs> yeah, it looks like he's cosplaying Primo. Yeah. Like it's an inside joke of like, yeah. oh, I look like Roglic did when he lost this or lost the tour. <laughs> yeah, or like howdy doody, something like that. I think that the helmet is too small, perhaps on purpose. I, I'm guessing there's some arrow advantage to this. You think it's too big. Well, you know, and maybe I I read it as too big. Same thing with Robert. Don't walk like, it back. Don't walk like, it back. These helmets are too big. That's why they're falling backwards. And I only bring it up because both my son and I are having this problem. I mean, maybe now I'm questioning everything. Are our helmets just too small and we need to size up? Because I, my helmet, I made the, the biggest mistake of my life, Andrew, was buying a helmet without trying it on first. I bought it on the internet. This was not a good idea. And now I'm sunk into this helmet. And I, I'm not accepting reality that it just does not fit. And it always slides back when I ride. And both Victor Camp and Arts and I look a little goofy when we ride bikes because of this. Maybe we do need to size up. I don't know. I, I'd try I, anything at this point. I think listeners need to know the answer to this question because I think it'll be revealing. Did the helmet not go back? Because rather than get it from Amazon, which sometimes, of course, doesn't have specialty cycling equipment, but almost always does have free returns. Did you purchase it from another e-commerce purveyor who did not offer free returns? And was it an onerous return process? Uh, man, I don't want to blame. I would love to blame them. It, I think it's just on me. I was like, man, am I really going to take this back? I bought it from, it's like an online retailer excel sports but they're based in boulder i probably just could have taken it right back to the store and gotten a new one but i was too proud i was thinking i did not miss size this helmet yeah like this is the right size and now i'm like two years into this thing <laughs> i think it might be the wrong size i'm looking up camping arts and it's too close to home um okay. he does he does look really goofy on the bike it, but as you say it almost he's convinced that he's not very talented and he can only compete by exploring every possible avenue to maximize his, his potential. So, I mean, it, as you say, there must be some reason for this. He wouldn't just be riding a wrong sized helmet or like, I'm just getting tons of bugs in my eyes all the time for fun. Like there, there must be a method behind. We need to get a bit into equipment and marginal gains here. Spencer, as I've shared with you, I've recently gotten into the canted brifters game. This is a first for me. I know that I'm a late bloomer with angling my brifters and I have liked it. I've moved to a narrower bar in the past few years as well. I'm not going taco narrow, but I've gone a bit narrower. And when you watch a day like today, and we have been sold this idea by the bike industry or some people have that arrow is everything, even when you're climbing, you know, if the speed's above a certain um, threshold, but the thing that I notice is, you know, Wout, Vanderpool, Jonas, they are on wide bars and they have normal brifters all the time. And they seem to do quite well, Spencer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Is, how is Jonas doing in this race? You know, I think there's one reason for it. I think it's control. Like, you know who has the most canted in brifters? It's, it's Quinn Simmons. Do you know who crashed today by himself? Quinn Simmons. Really hard. Like you cannot control the bike at all when you, I actually like the feeling of having canted and brifters, like when you're riding and not turning, it is less control. The bike's a lot twitchier. I think yeah. that's why Yumbo, it is, it is a, weird to see. Like they just don't, they have very wide bars. They have straight brifters. I, I think it's, they've decided that any arrow loss is made up for the, by the fact that they're not on the ground crashed. It's almost like they're going to do an enduro mountain bike event when you look at them now relative to everyone else in the peloton. Yeah, and when you saw Wout in the breakaway with Mads Pedersen, I mean, 
the bikes look like they came, they came from like different centuries. Like, wow, it kind of has this traditional Cervelo. I mean, it's a beautiful bike, like the S5, I think, with, I think he might even have like a traditional cockpit with just a stem and handlebars. And then you look at Mads Pedersen, it looks like he's on a 45 pound, like almost show bike or something. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, I know that people talk about the Tarmac SL7 quite a bit is, you know, it's kind of seen as the gold standard for being lightweight, aero, fast, whether that's marketing or reality, who knows, but I, that does seem to be the perception among riders in the world tour. Like they talk about it amongst themselves. We hear it in a lot of different spaces and places. Fabio Jakobsen, of course, snapped his SL7 in half on the raceway in stage four. And I don't know if you noticed this, but it appears BMC is about to introduce a new bike. And from what I can tell, it is a Tarmac SL7. Uh, it, does, <laughs> it does seem to have a wider, it has like a weird super wide fork and it has a slightly extended head tube because I think the UCI recently changed regulations related to dimensions of tube shapes. But other than that, I was like, okay, this, and they, they have it in like a dazzle camo wrap. So you're, makes it a bit more difficult to discern what's going on with the frame, but it pretty much looks like a Tarmac SL7. Well, when Henley won today on the SL7, you know, my first thought was like, it almost looks like he's on like a throwback bike. You know, it's just yeah. kind of clean lines, really simple. People do love them. Riders, like pro riders. Yeah, my, was, I was uh, checking one out the other day. The thing that stuck out to me is they're just really light. Like, I wonder if, if they're just simple bikes that are reasonably arrow and really light. And that you look at Matt's Pedersen bike, his bike does not look light at all. It just looks overly complicated. I, I think people are just responding to the simplicity of it. That they, it, what's interesting is they killed the Venge, which was their aero road bike, which looks a lot like the bikes that other teams are riding that aren't specialized. So it must be a fast, they must have discovered that the extra layups and shapes to make a quote unquote aero bike are just simply not worth it. That they can make a simple road bike pretty arrow, and then in aggregate, it's it's faster because it's so much lighter. Now, Spencer, I know that you've walked away from, I believe you've walked away from the pro team sprinting consulting game. If you haven't, and you want to declare anything now, you can. But a question that I have about that, watching the opening stages thus far, roundabouts playing a very significant role in a handful of stages here. And I know that riders sometimes can't influence where they're going to be entering a roundabout. They have to split. They end up on the wrong side. And that pretty much is the end of their chances in the finale many times. Or can you give us any inside information about what information riders are given about negotiating roundabouts and whether they're given directions to, hey, specifically be on the left side if possible when going into this roundabout? Or is it just too chaotic in the last say 3k to actually be in the right space or place and you just kind of have to roll with wherever you are i think they try to give them that information but if you think about it logistically the roundabouts are only the good the good line is only revealed once they block the road off and put the barriers up so like they're doing that probably right probably they're probably doing that tomorrow morning for the next stage for tomorrow's stage so you have to have a team member advanced like an advanced man who then rides it or drives it after they put the barriers up and close the road off because if you go to you can go to the these finishes a month before but they're just it's nonsense you're in the middle of a city you can't tell anything but once they put the barriers up you can see the course the traffic's closed off and i i think i could be wrong i think they can like they'll have someone drive it and they try to show it to the riders before they start the stage but sometimes I think they can't get the information to them before they start or, or it's very rushed right before. It's just a time issue of once the course is built, looking at the course, getting the information to the riders. Because we did see uh, Sam Wells for the DSM uh, sprinter just go the wrong way. I think yeah. that was uh, yesterday. So yeah, it, it does happen yeah. that the guys just don't know where to go. Yeah. So, uh, you know, at this point, it's a bit played out to talk about what went down on the raceway do you want to have a go well i, I let's just talk about raceways more specifically okay. more generally 
I don't like, I do not like them. I think they're built for cars. I think they look, it looks a little bush league. Like it kind of looks like you're at the UAE tour or something like that. Like an early season race. And it's like, we're finishing on this raceway. Like I think San Juan had a raceway finish. You can't really have fans on them. The riders look like they're going really slow because they're built for cars that go like 250 miles an hour. I just think it looks weird. It's a bad, it's bad optics. Maybe we don't need them. Also, they're more dangerous because they're so, they're optimized for speed and they're wide. So you can go around a curve like six guys wide. If you're in the middle of a city, it's, it's like single file, which is much safer than a bunch of people stacked next to each other. I think it's too easy to move up. So you just like, you know, we saw all those crashes yesterday because everyone can move across the road freely. If you're on a traditional sprint in a city, it might look more dangerous because it's single file and it looks faster and there's road furniture, but I think it actually is safer because you can't move around as much. I think the finish yesterday proved that there actually are no safe finishes. Yeah, it was a straight, it was pancake flat and straight. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't think that there are any safe finishes in professional cycling because, you know, particularly with limited sprint opportunities in the tour and all grand tours, they're going to do whatever they need to do to try to win the race, including if you're Matthew Vanderpool. I'd, I'd like to hear your take on this as well, whether that was, you know, a deviation from his, his line. Well, he got relegated, so I guess I, technically, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know he got relegated, but I mean, would they have done that at the Lawrence Tuesday night crit? I mean. I think the, the issue was he pushed someone out of the way. But right. yeah, I mean, but I mean, we that. see, we do see people get pushed out of the way all the time. Was it just like, Hey, this is so glaringly obvious given we have an open field of vision, a, a relatively reduced group. And we all saw you do it because you pushed him all the way, all the way but over. It's beautiful too, open, because I think they right? moved him from like 16th place to 27th place. So what does oh. he care? It, it's just like awesome because they get to say, well, we've punished him. And then it's actually not a punishment. And Alpacin's totally fine with it. And the race gets to say, we have control of these sprints. I think it it was just a real win-win for them. Yeah. I'm wondering, are we going to see people actually deploy this as a tactic in sprints going forward? Because if there's just a slap on the wrist and there's no significant penalty, why would you not have someone just push someone out of the way so that you can win the race? I think that they're trying. I think what the problem is, so, okay, you can push, it's 350 meters to go, push a guy out of the way, you're 10 riders back, where are you going? (laughs) You're going nowhere. Once you hit that wind, you're ejected to the back of the pack. Vanderpool is just one of the only riders in the world who can step out into the wind in the middle of a sprint, pull his rider to the front of the group and then have that guy sprint. I think just physically no one else is capable of that. I've, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that at a sprint speed that high. To put it another way, at Belgian Waffle Ride Lawrence in October, are you willing to do this for me if I'm going for like 103rd place? Will you displace a rider? Yeah, and they'll probably be like the riders doing the seven or the 30 mile one. Yeah. We'll all, per- we'll all be finishing at the same time. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah. Um, getting back to, I mean, to me, it looked like they were they were flying into like the gardenia swap meet on a Sunday afternoon. That's what it looked like. And I agree with you. I didn't think it really, it yeah, just kind of looks felt, like a local crit series you do on a weeknight. It felt, like it felt, felt a bit undignified to me. Yes. I completely agree. Yeah. Like I mean, we just, we like set up some cones. Like you're going to take your driver's test. No, there's Matthew Vanderpool. <laughs> <laughs> do you think it's weird? I think it's beautiful. Like, I think those two lead outs were like maybe my favorite thing of the tour so far. Do you think it's weird that Vanderpool's not going for wins himself? I do think it's weird. And it makes me wonder what's going on inside of that team. Is it, is, uh, I also want to rebrand Jasper as Jasper, the blaster. <laughs> I think, I mean, we talked about this. Is it Jasper? Is it Jasper? Nobody. He said Jasper, right? He He said said Jasper. Everyone else said Jasper. So yeah, you get to pick, you get to pick how your name's pronounced. So I'm going to go with Jasper. I'm wondering if he's pre, if he's anticipating, we won't know how to say Jasper and it's just mispronouncing his own name. But oddly, Vanderpool cannot win bunch sprints. It does not happen. Obviously, physically, he can do it, but there must just be something where he can get to the last 200 meters, but he can't 
navigate the nuance of that last 200 meters to the finish. I mean, the guy, if you go through his career, it's it's like shockingly a small amount. I don't think he's ever won a world tour yeah. level bunch sprint. Yeah, it's usually in a two or three up yeah. group. You're right. Like I'm thinking about even because I was about to say, well, is that true? Because if you take a look at cyclocross worlds this year, he totally smoked Wout. And he's uh, amazing at small right? sprints. But that's yeah. but that's that's one on one. And really, what he did is he jumped him, gapped him, and then he just had a gap, which is a bit different than a, a straight up drag race. And Wout, for whatever reason, kind of gave up at that moment in time. There's also a weird. Like Phillipson's probably faster than him in a 200 meter sprint, so it would be a little odd to watch him sprinting against his own teammate, and they're yeah. both getting like fifth and sixth or something. Probably wouldn't be as fun and cool, but clearly he's a little off form because he should have been in contention for stages one and two. Um, yeah, not I guess not. It's like Van. It's like Van Art. He's off form and still able to perform like an absurd amount of work for his team. Do you, is there anything else you want to talk about before we have to run? Yeah, I actually I wanted to talk about Caleb Ewan a little bit. Caleb is a writer. I've I've been interested in Caleb because of uh gosh, this is gonna blow your mind, but he has quite an interesting social media presence. And I don't know if he has his own filmer or what he does, but he he does give you a pretty personal look inside of what his experience is like at these big races. And, you know, did not have a good tour last year. He was recently on Jens Voigt and Bobby Julek's podcast, which, um, you know, Caleb is one of my favorite guests that I've heard on there. And it was an, it was a very interesting interview and it went really deep on a lot of things. I personally have been very curious about related to Caleb's trajectory, his sprint style, because Caleb has that same style as Cavendish really, where they're very compact riders. They're not very tall. They, you know, have insane, uh, power to weight ratios in that sprint, or I'm sorry, they, they can just like put out huge, huge Watts and they're, uh, they're just so low profile. Their nose is on the stem when they're sprinting. And Caleb explained that for him, he actually came to that style because once he starts his sprint, he knows that he's losing his top end power as he gets closer to the line. And as he does that, he discovered in the wind tunnel that when he gets in that crazy position with his nose on the stem, or actually it's probably in front of the stem, they're so far forward on their bikes, you kind of wonder how they're getting traction. And he said he tried it in the wind tunnel, the reduction in drag was very high, but he couldn't really sprint effectively doing that. So what he does is he puts out his peak watts, and then as he gets closer to the line, he lowers himself in his his drag goes down as he's getting closer to the line as his power is falling. So I was like, wow, this guy, you know, super analytical about how he's sprinting. Also like all sprinters, it's like, whatever, I just want to win. That's, that's what gets him going. And I'm just curious if he's going to be able to do it. Is he, you know, his, is he past his prime? Uh, and he also talked quite a bit as you can imagine. And we saw this in the Netflix series, how, sprinting like many things in life is just a confidence game so like you can have the ability but if you don't have the mentality you don't have the belief you're just not going to do it and i wonder if he can get that level of belief back that he needs to now beat jasper the blaster I think he's totally i mean i thought he was the best sprinter in the race yesterday just doesn't have a lead out rider like he's sprinting in the wind when phillipson's still behind vanderpool and almost beats him yeah, but I mean, I mean, but how many how many of these great sprinters have been the like I can freelance it? Like that was Sagan in his prime. That was I mean, Cav did have Redshaw and other great lead out men over the years, but in recent history, he's been more of a freelancer. I think I think the level is so high in these current sprints. Everyone's so close. Like the parody is is that is real. And yeah. like if you just have if you're sprinting at someone with Matthew Vanderpool and you're in the wind, I mean can you imagine the watts you have to put out to match Phillipson in that slipstream? So you're starting your sprint. It could be 50 meters, 100 meters before your rival and then losing by a bike throw. I mean, it, it, the team is just, he did have a lead out rider. They just crashed out of the race. So it's not totally the team's fault, but he just had a little bit more support. I, I think he wins yesterday's stage. So I think he's totally capable of winning. I think he'll win a stage before the tour is over. 
I, of course, have no data here. I did look at his bike, and I wondered, is his bike as fast as the other bikes? No, I don't think so. I, those aren't even real bikes. They're just like, I think, like, the Belgian government makes them keep making them, and they use, like, some third-party manufacturer to make them. In general, it's like a it's, white it, label. Yeah. In general, it's all about the rider's position. A lot of the marketing around aero bikes is marketing. You do have to wonder at those speeds and at this level, might he benefit from a faster bike? It might be. I would generally say no. That might be the worst bike in the race. If, well, maybe uh, it, it's up there for sure. So it's you're bit, saying you're saying it, it it might be the margin of defeat. Probably could be, yeah. Like if he's on a canyon, is he winning that? Maybe. If, I mean, if he's on a, an SL, yeah. Seven, he's a solo win, probably. Yeah. Yeah, he's probably ten seconds ahead. Um, he wins we, today's mountain stage. Yeah, I I need to go back and watch the tape. I don't really, I didn't really see how Jakobsen. I didn't see how his frame broke in half. And again, speaking about confidence, man, are we going to see him come back from that wreck? We're going to see him win in this tour. I don't, I don't think so. With the that mountain was, stage yeah. today, I mean, did he even make the time cut today? I don't know. I haven't looked. He did. Oh wow, he finished. He was the yeah. last rider, and then he has an even harder stage tomorrow. I I don't think so. That looked bad. It was weird because it was just kind of a touch of wheels. Went down. It must have. He must have landed. Like I've crashed many, many, many times in my life. I've never shredded a frame in half like that. Now that's you have to go down at such an odd angle to do that. I think he's maybe done for the race. I think his new nickname's the chainsaw. The chainsaw. What if it's the it's the it's like the frame thing all over again? Like, did someone run him over? Is this a conspiracy? Why did his yeah. frame break in half? What happened? Yeah. Um, so Ineos, I just want to talk about Ineos for a second. Let's it's talk like about Ineos. A parody. It's like they're a parody of themselves. Like they just keep like today. Danny Martinez, great ride, finishes seventh, right behind Mateusz Galmoza in front of Tadej Pogacar. That's fantastic, except for the fact that Danny Martinez is is 16 minutes down in the GC. <laughs> Who they just keep every day another rider does well. And if they could combine them into a single rider, they'd have a viable GC contender. The problem is they can't pick one. Like Carlos Rodriguez finishes 10th. He's probably their best GC option. He's in ninth place overall. But are, are Martinez and Tom Pickcock and Egan Bernal, it's like they're all racing independently of one another. I don't think Rodriguez is going to get any help from the team to finish high up. And I, I like Rod Allenworth. Like I think his style is fantastic, That the guy who runs that team. But he had this strange quote the other day where he was saying, like, you know, it's not really our fault that we don't have a GC contender here because if Bernal wouldn't have crashed, we'd be at this team. We'd be at this race with a really strong team. Oh, yeah. It's like, dude, that was two years ago. You had a little bit of time to retool here. Did you, uh, I know we both caught JV doing the commentary on Eurosport today. Did you catch the, the section where there was kind of a like, what if World War II didn't happen? It was like, what if Carapaz was still in the race? Did you catch that bit? No, I didn't catch this. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was pretty entertaining. He was like, well, you know, if Carapaz were still here right now, this is the thing that he would be doing. And yeah, it, uh, there's just some imaginative thinking that I think goes on at times that Enios, uh sequence of excuses seems seems weak to me. I really couldn't believe yeah. because like EF, that's that's a little bit more understandable. Like yeah, totally. Of course, you're with the guy, about, he yeah. crashed out. Like yeah, it's fine. But this is like that was a long time ago. You, you could have acquired a leader or at least ride for. Rodriguez, you know, it's like, yeah. and Pickcock is bouncing around all over the place. It's just the same thing. We see every race from them. And it's still crazy to me. They sent both Gegenhardt and Thomas to the Giro as opposed to maybe send one of them to the tour. I mean, a fit Garrett Thomas probably does pretty well today. Yeah. His ego alone would take him into probably the top three on this stage. <laughs> he's he's podcasting about the race. I haven't listened to them yet. It's but. it's good. He's I enjoy his podcast. And do you think it's better when he's in the race or not in the race? Uh I think it's better when he's not in the race. I think that this could be a thing that he does much like I actually really enjoy Wiggins as well doing commentary. Wiggins is very good. With, yeah. Uh, I really enjoy his podcast. So yeah. tomorrow 
stage six. And so, so give me your gripes on this route really quick. You, you said you have not thought this is dynamic as the last three years. I'm just comparing it to the past three years where again, now that we've, we've kind of had this therapeutic session of talking through it, it really was nuclear wout and, you know, MVDP trying to go after him. And I mean, also Pog doing inadvisable things, which was cool until it didn't work out for him. I mean, I agree with you, total waste of energy for him to be going for all those bonus seconds in the first few stages, the Yates thing, who knows, but certainly entertaining. Yeah, certainly entertaining. I mean, I've kind of liked it. I thought the it was a little, it's a little weird when it starts abroad and it's a hard opening weekend. It, I just found it hard to like find my footing. Like I was watching the Volta Catalonia or something or the tour of the Basque country. Um, I, I thought the sprints were good. Right. I liked the first two stages, kind of surprise winners. And then the excellent stage today. Did you know this was like almost a carbon copy of stage eight from 2021? 2020, where Pogacar won his first Tour de France stage. And we're like, whoa, this guy is pretty good. Little did we know what we were watching. But so we go into tomorrow's like really the only real Pyrenees day of this race. And then we kind of hedge really hard on the Alps later. Do you think we're going to see anything or is everyone so freaked out about Vindegaard that it's just try not to get dropped? I think tomorrow it will be a try not to get dropped and then something that will something will happen that shakes the snow globe and then an unexpected result will come of it and we'll see what happens i i tend i kind of agree with you i do agree with you logically but then i see like the cold at tourmalay second yeah. to last climb i'm like oh boy what's what's Pagacha got cooking up here yeah is that pride like as we said about vanderpool kind of uh just having a terrible tour like a wet fish of a tour or a dead fish of a tour yeah, not uh, on ice. That fish is not on ice. It's been out for ice. a few days. Yeah, someone forgot it. Someone didn't close the bridge. Pogacar is going to be really, really, really hurt emotionally about today, and it could get stuff could get interesting tomorrow. We'll see. Well, like we'll really see how he is. I personally think he just should have come into this. Just follow wheels. Like don't do anything. Just ride. Get some races in your legs. Do something in the second and third week. I think the strategy has been terrible from. His UAE team, I don't quite understand what was going on with Adam Yates. You see Adam Yates was sitting behind him all day. And then when he went to pole, just got dropped immediately. It's like, this kind of goes to your question that I thought was a little crazy before the tour. Is it a net game to have Adam Yates? Today, it was a net negative. Because what if that was Mark Hershey on the team instead? Mark Hershey probably would have given him some poles and wouldn't have gotten dropped the moment he stepped forward to take one pole. Yeah. Well, stay tuned. I've got a bounce, Spencer, but it's been good chopping it up. More to come. We'll do more of these throughout the tour. Hit us up. Let you let us know what you think. Who's on ice? Who's going to the top? Who's on the volcano? Thank you, Andrew, for joining us. And we will talk to you all soon.